0: This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.
1: The Reformation is where we begin. And uh, when you talk about the Reformation, You have to realize that we are talking about one of the great events in human history. I don't care if you're a Christian, a non-Christian, an academic at some university who teaches history. You can't avoid the fact that the Reformation period affected the course of Western civilization. It ranks up there with the Enlightenment as one of those crucial watershed epochal events in the course of Western civilization. We cannot escape its influence. Even today, I I would argue that that we are still living with the consequences, the rippling effect of what happened in the 1500s. So, this is a course that is The the, uh, topics of the Reformation, those are courses that are taught in universities. Uh, Not usually a required course, uh, but it's still taught, even today. Uh, And that's because it was indeed an epochal event that everyone must come to terms with. I would say that every, every intelligent, educated person ought to have some awareness, some understanding of the Reformation period. And for those of us who are Christians, uh, that presents, I think, even, there's more responsibility to understand that because I think that that will aid us in understanding our own world today because this world today is still dealing with the repercussions of those events of the 16th century. So let's put up the old outline. How are we doing? One of the things that uh, I like to do is to let people know, particularly religious type people, I always like to let them know about the Reformation that it wasn't just a matter of religion. It's a matter of politics as well. We cannot understand the events Indeed, we can't understand fully the success of the Reformation unless we understand that God in His sovereign providence employed certain political circumstances to bring about the Reformation. One could argue, particularly from a human perspective, that the Reformation would not have succeeded had it not been for a peculiar set of... Of political circumstances and certain personalities who had certain uh, quirks and convictions that led them to take one tact as opposed to another. So politics is essential to understanding the Reformation. Uh, I will also talk about the church. I'll try to give us a quick run-through about how things were on the eve of the Reformation, and I'll also talk about some of the major intellectual uh, contexts of the Reformation period, just to get us oriented to the period. Uh, you can't just simply, at least in my book, you can't just start with Luther, you've got to do a little bit of setting of the context. Politics played a vital role in the Reformation. And you can't begin to understand the Reformation without some understanding of the political developments of the period. Uh, There were many political circumstances. I will point out two of the biggest and and really important political kinds of events that uh, had a direct bearing upon the Reformation. Berg-Valois Wars. Anybody see that clearly enough? Charles V was the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, he became the Holy Roman Emperor in 1519. And the bane of his existence was Francis I, King of France. Francis I was the arch nemesis of Charles V. Now, there were three areas three geographical areas over which they battled. Both Francis I, of France, and Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, claimed, first, the Duchy of Milan. They also both laid claim to the Duchy of Burgundy. Milan, as you may or may not know, is in northern Italy today. Burgundy is in modern france south east central france just due west of switzerland both charles and francis claimed this area <coughs> and both were concerned about the netherlands which is northeast of france well, those are three areas over which they contended Burgundy, Milan, and the Netherlands. The problem between Francis and Charles goes back primarily to 1519, when both Francis and Charles wanted to be the next Holy Roman Emperor. And the Holy Roman Emperor had to be... Technically, he is the titular head over what we now call Germany. But Germany was uh, composed of 300 or so little independent principalities with dukes and barons and all kinds of little, uh, little monarchs. And so he, didn't, he had some control over them, but not exclusively. Now, he was already the king of Spain. Uh, and as, as a result of having inherited uh, his parents, were Ferdinand and Isabella, that he uh, inherited Spain and the New World. So the, the bottom line is this, that Charles V was the most powerful man in the world. Uh, and being made Holy Roman Emperor... Was the jewel in his crown, if you will. Now, the Holy Roman Emperor is also important because the Emperor represents the. Christendom was sort of viewed as a unity. And on one side was the Pope. He represented uh, the church in Christendom. But the one who represented all the other states was the Holy Roman Emperor. So, church and state, uh, even though uh, Charles V didn't have direct control over France or many other countries, he still had this this exalted title. He was the upholder of Christianity in the world, and uh, in, in, on, the, on the political side of things. Uh, well, there was ideally supposed to be a unity. Christendom was one. Now, there were subcategories: or that the political side and the church side. You know, there was—in other words, there was no separation of church and state like we have. One was supposed to uphold the ideals of the other. This will come into play here as we talk about the Turks in particular. Uh, the Turks challenged uh the western christendom and whose job was it to lead in battle against the turks the holy roman emperor he had sworn an oath to uphold orthodox christianity and so that was his job and charles v is a terribly interesting fellow He was a very sincere Catholic. He took his responsibilities as emperor very, very seriously. Uh, If I were trying to explain this, I might sort of see it this way, that the Holy Roman Emperor is sort of like the chairman of a board of directors of a large multinational corporation. Hmm? I'm talking here about the political side. Uh, that's, a, that's another half. <laughs> the world is divided between church and state. But even church and state come under the broad rubric of Christendom. The state is not outside Christendom. Okay? So these are, they talk about the secular sword and the spiritual sword of Christendom. The Pope wielded the spiritual sword. And the Holy Roman Emperor represented the political sword. Who was the Pope at the
0: time?
1: At this time, uh, Charles uh, Clement the I believe. Because oftentimes, I think in church history, aren't some of the popes more
0: powerful
1: than the king Mm-hmm. Different times, they are. Well, at this time, there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever. But there have been various times in history where the popes did have more power than the various kings, and indeed, or even more than a Holy Roman emperor. Uh, again, we're talking about what we can call a basic unity, what I call Christendom. And there was no separation of church and state within Christendom. And there is a sense in which it was generally understood that the Pope had spiritual authority over the Holy Roman Emperor. And some Popes tried to expand that spiritual authority over a king or the emperor into a political authority. Some kings rebelled against that, some bowed to it. In this case, uh, Charles did not bow. In fact, we'll see that, that he put Clement under his thumb in a very powerful way. But back to the, to the focus here. Uh, the problem between Francis and Charles, Charles being the Holy Roman Emperor, Francis the King of France, uh, that problem goes back to the election of the Holy Roman Emperor in 1519. 1519. There were seven electors, uh, and they cast their votes. A lot of bribery. There were a number of various candidates for uh, for uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, and it looks as though uh, the fact of the matter is is that the grand the man the the former emperor was the grandfather of Charles, and the grandfather certainly wanted his crown upon his death to go to Charles, and Charles also bribed very well. So did all the other candidates. At any rate, Francis I was chapped. He had wanted to be the Holy Roman Emperor and he failed. Instead, it was Charles who who, uh, became the Emperor in 1519. Now, both monarchs were threatened by the other. Charles saw Francis as an aggressive power who was trying to disrupt the peace of Europe because he was dis- he was upset that he didn't become Holy Roman Emperor. And Charles, at this time, and we'll get to this in a little more detail in a minute. At this time early on in 1519 after he becomes emperor his main goal is to try to unite Christendom to fight the Turk who is threatening the eastern borders of Christendom western europe but this this french king francis keeps starting wars with charles in fact there are four wars that go on they're called the habsburg valois habsburg refers to charles the Valois refers to Francis I, and there were four wars in four decades. So the entire, from 1521 until 1560-something, there are, there is war after war after war between the Holy Roman Emperor and the King of France. All of them started by Francis, and each of them, Francis, is defeated. In each of them, Francis signs a treaty saying he won't do it again. And in each of them, except for the last, he does do it again. Starts another war. It is... A, Francis was a hard guy. To, so Charles saw Francis as this aggressive, disruptive force in Western Christendom. Francis... One can sort of understand Francis a little bit. And do you know where France is? On its... Let me get this right. On his east border is Germany or the Holy Roman Empire, Charles V. On his west border is Spain, Charles V. On his northern border in the Netherlands, Charles V. And the Mediterranean is on the the south. So Francis feels surrounded by the Holy Roman Emperor. All of his borders are basically covered with the, 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 the uh, principalities of Charles V. So Francis is trying to find a way to get out of this, this this hemmed in kind of feeling that he must have had.
0: So Francis is not under Charles V?
1: No, n- n- Charles only moved over what Well, I've... Well, I've The Hollermann Empire is what we would call Germany today. He was the king of Spain, Netherlands, uh, parts of Italy, uh, all of the New World. Uh, There was debate here about Burgundy, which is right in sort of the southern central part of what we call France today. Uh, He was the largest landowner by far uh, in Europe at that time. The most powerful man he had. He only had the title, but he also had the geography. These lands he was of which he was king. So we're talking about a really powerful person, but that did not mean that these other countries didn't have sovereignty as well. Francis was an independent sovereign, okay? Just as uh, the King of England was an independent sovereign, and and. And Charles didn't rule over them. Is that helpful? Well, the first blows were struck by Francis, who in 1521 gave support to a number of rebels in Spain, which again was Charles's uh, home country. Charles responded to Francis's support of these rebels by invading France. He also captured Milan in November of 1521. And that's key. Francis, in response, again, tries to recapture Milan in 1525, was defeated in the Battle of Pavia. P A V I A. Go ahead. Rebels in Spain rebels who are trying to rebel against Charles V. Yes, in fifteen twenty by sending an army into uh, France. He doesn't he doesn't uh, occupy doesn't conquer any particular territory. There are a few pitched battles but but no big deal. He then turns a little bit south and takes over Milan, which Francis felt was his. The famous battle is the Battle of Pavia, P-A-V-I-A. Uh, in England, there are uh, wonderful tapestries of this Battle of Pavia. And it shows Charles V and Francis I in tapestries. And that shows the defeat and then capture of Francis I by Charles V. The Battle you of P- uh, Francis attempted to push out Charles. Charles had captured Milan in 1520. In 1521, there were some rebels in Spain, and they tried to overthrow Charles V, who was the King of Spain in addition to being Holy Roman Emperor. Francis, the King of France, supported those rebels. Charles didn't like that, that made him mad. So he raises an army and goes into France, has a few battles, then turns south and captures one of the jewels in, in, uh, in uh, the French crown, and that is Milan, the duchy of not just a city, but a whole region. And so Francis felt that was his, and Charles said, well, now it's mine. This is what you get for supporting those rebels. So they have a major battle in northern Italy called the Battle of Pavia. in 15, This is actually in 1525, a few years later. And at that time, Charles is by far the more powerful, and he defeats Francis I at the Battle of Pavia, and he also captures him, the King of France. Now, it's real easy about their four wars. Francis starts all four of them, loses all four of them. Okay? Charles wins them all. Real simple. Well, having this very distinguished prisoner on his hands, uh, now the question was, what was Charles to do with this uh, renegade French king? Uh, Henry VIII said, well, just cut his head off. (laughs) Of course, that's what Henry said all the time. Uh, well, Charles Charles is, is a serious Christian, and he thinks well. Maybe we can reach a political settlement. So he sat down and negotiated what was called the Treaty of Madrid. Now, in exchange for his freedom, Francis had to agree one to renounce his claims on Milan. Netherlands, and Burgundy, the three areas of contention between the two sovereigns. To renounce his claims to Milan, the Netherlands, and Burgundy. Secondly, he had to promise to marry Charles' sister, Eleanor. Now, that could have been a torture, (laughs) but he decided to just go ahead and risk it. You know, back in those days, there were lots of political marriages... And sometimes you resolved uh, an age-old conflict by marrying off your sister or or something, or your daughter. (coughs) Treaty of Madrid. Yes. And the third thing that Francis had to agree to is that to have his two oldest sons kept hostage by Charles V to make sure that Francis kept his part of the bargain. He did not. <laughs> At the first opportunity, Francis renounced the Treaty of Madrid and went about his business. The sons were eventually released anyway. But the sons were eventually released anyway. What's that?
0: Oh, I think he married Eleanor, yeah.
1: The sister. Charles' sister. It's getting Well, I'm not gonna go into all four of the of the major wars, but the basically the same sort of scenario occurs again and again and again. Francis starts the war, Charles finishes it. Francis could just not be kept down. He reneged on his agreement all four times. Uh, At any rate, this is part of the context here. I'm going to jump quickly to the Turks as well. Okay, so that gives you a sense of the four wars. It's, It's real simple. Charles versus Francis, Holy Roman Emperor versus France. Charles wins, Francis loses. All four. Francis died. He didn't kill him. He just just died of old age. Uh, that's the only way the war stopped.
0: Uh,
1: yeah. Got t- well. Now he didn't get tired. He just died. Uh, who knows what he would have done afterward? Okay. So, got these these wars going on now from 15 1520s to the 1560s, one right after the other. The second political event that goes on for the first half of the 16th century are the Turks. Charles V found himself in a two-front war. In the west, he was fighting war after war with Francis. And in the East the Turks were making steady headway into Eastern Europe. The great leader, the great leader of the Turks was Suleiman the Magnificent. It's a wonderful name. I'd like that for mine. Suleiman the Magnificent. His dates are 1520 to 1566. A magnificent soldier who led his Turkish army across Asia and began to make penetration into the eastern side of Western Europe, which was Christendom. Suleiman was also a lifelong opponent of Charles V. And what you find throughout the first half of the 16th century is a pervasive fear of the Turk. These pagans who don't eat the same kinds of foods we eat and who devise terrible tortures to deal with their captives. I mean, there were several great fears in Europe. One was the Turk and the other was the plague. And the two sort of got confused because both were very, very horrible in the minds of the common Western European person. Those horrid Turks. Who knows what they would do to you if they were to capture your city. This extraordinary fear. And that fear was exacerbated by the fact that they kept making inroads into the eastern eastern Europe. They conquered Belgrade in 1521, that is the former Yugoslavia. 1521. They took the city of Belgrade. In fifteen twenty-six Suleiman defeated the Hungarians you can see he's moving steadily forward and then in 1529 and it struck fear throughout people all over western Europe he got to the gates of Vienna his army surrounded Vienna and began to tunnel underground to come into the city and capture it fortunately they were were unsuccessful and the, the, def- the supply lines of Suleiman the Magnificent was the only thing that really stopped him because his supply lines were stretched too far and he couldn't keep supplying his troops and so they withdrew not because uh, the defenders of, of Vienna could have withstood much more or because they would somehow defeated Suleiman so the, the threat of having one of the great cities of Western Europe almost captured by this pagan sent ripples of fear Throughout. And whose job was it in Western Europe to fight the feared Turk? The Holy Roman Emperor. That was his job, and it was his goal to raise an army to go and defend his eastern borders. Well, I've given you a lot of history, haven't I? Where
0: did
1: the Turks migrate from? Asia, someplace. Turkey. That area, general vicinity. Probably call Turks. No, no, these are, these are Turks. Now, I've talked a lot about the politics and wars and things going on. Now, you may very well be asking yourself what does this have to do with the Reformation? Glad you asked. The significance is this just as Luther was getting his movement underway talking 1517, 1518, 1519, 1520, just at the point when Luther was the most vulnerable, when he could have been cut down so quickly and so easily, just at this very crucial point, Francis is preoccupied. He's preoccupied with war after war after war with France. He's preoccupied with the fear of the Turks who are constantly threatening his eastern borders. Charles. Charles. So he doesn't have time to do what he would have ordinarily done with this monk from a backwater university in Wittenberg who makes all these mumblings about justification. Who cares and who knows what it means anyway, as far as he was concerned. This guy was a heretic, and what do you do with heretics? You burn them. No problem with that. He's the most powerful man in the world. No, No big deal. I mean, what did his grandfather, Maximilian, the former Holy Roman Emperor, do when Jan Hus created a problem? He burned him. That's what the Holy Roman Emperor does with a heretic. But he didn't do that with Luther. And one of the main reasons he did not do that is because he was terribly preoccupied with these other kinds of concerns. And so politics does play a very significant role in permitting... Luther to get the movement underway. One wonders, at least from a human perspective, had not the Habsburg-Valois wars been going on and the threat of the Turks had not been overshadowing the politics of Europe at the time, would Luther have been successful? It's hard to imagine how he would have with such with such a powerful man as Charles V. Who could have easily squashed Luther like a bug? Any questions about the politics? Bob. Well, I'm trying to remember Is also here that, in keeping with that, that a lot of the
0: German princes were at least potentially dissatisfied enough with Charles that, um,
1: well, yes, as a matter of fact, that's true. I mean, you have 300 uh, principalities in Germany, each of which had its own sovereign head, and over which, in a titular sort of way, w- was Charles V. And, the, and Germany was by no means united These were very different people who had different agendas. And Charles V, I mean, we can't think of Germany as as a united whole at this point. Just very, very divided. Uh, And there was a... The relationship between the electors and the princes of Germany and Charles V was not always good. And someone like Frederick the Wise, who was a very powerful prince, he... uh, he felt he had his own rights, and and that he protected Luther uh, very self consciously. Uh, partly in a sense of, of declaring his own independence, that he's not really under the thumb of Charles V, although in a technical sense he sort of was. So yes, you have these very interesting dynamics going on, even in Germany, and they those two contributed to uh, Luther's survival at this very vulnerable point in the movement, the Reformation. let's look at the church what kinds of things were going on on the eve of the reformation what's the historical context of the church we looked at politics and I want to look at the church a little bit from the beginning of the 14th century the papacy was wracked by one crisis after another until finally the church split at the seams in the 16th century there were a number of reasons for the decline of the papacy and its power. One of the main things, and this is still before we... I'm talking here in general now, just under, not, not at any subpoint yet. Is that the Pope, although technically he had the spiritual sword and the emperor had the political sword, it it seemed like more and more that popes kind of acted as if they had the secular or the political sword. And it seemed that the popes more and more were becoming involved in or entangled in secular kinds of of matters, political matters, military matters. There's one of the famous stories about Pope Julius II. Here is a pope who actually led an army into battle. That didn't compute for a lot of people in Europe. The pope is not a military leader. That is the thing that is left to the Holy Roman Emperor and to other kings. And here you have a pope who's acting not so much like the vicar of Christ, but like a territorial prince and so in the eyes of Western Europe there is a certain kind of, of, of confusion a lack of, of, a, of appreciation for, for the Pope because his authority is, is kind of diminishing because he's acting not like the vicar of Christ but like a territorial prince his approval rating was not good Now, they didn't do any polls back then, as far as I know. Let's lead just directly into the Babylonian captivity and the Great Schism. And this dramatically affected the general perceptions of the church, of the papacy. So we're now in Babylonian captivity. The zenith. Of papal power was reached in the pontificate of Innocent the Third. Dates are eleven sixty one to twelve sixteen. But after that, there were ebbs and flows, ups and downs in terms of the papal power. Eleven sixty one. To 1216. That's just a reference point for uh, this event. But the, the, the Pope did not always have this absolute power that Innocent III had. Boniface Eighth, Pope Boniface Eighth, had tried to subjugate Philip the Fair of France, Philip the Fair of France. You got it? Say it fast. <laughs> Say it fast three times, see if you can do it. Anyway, the two were into into a, a battle of wills, and Boniface VIII issued the very famous Unum Sanctum. This was a document which declared that the Pope is the head of the church, which goes without saying, but as the head of the church, he had authority, therefore, over all of the kings and rulers of the world, particularly of Western Europe. And this document also stated that submission to the Pope by any monarch was necessary for their own salvation. In other words, if you didn't submit to the Pope and you were the King of France, you were going to hell. That's what the Unum Sanctum is all about. This is an attempt on the part of Boniface VIII to have the same sort of power that Innocent III had where he has, in effect, ruled over the kings of Europe. This is a way of trying to gain leverage over the various kings. Philip the Fair didn't see things quite the same way. His response to the Unum Sanctum was to throw Boniface in prison, and he did. And that's where he died. So the attempt to recapture the same authority and power of Innocent III by Boniface failed and failed utterly. Well, he was succeeded, Boniface was, by Clement V. Pope Clement V. And Clement V was a quick study he saw what had happened to his predecessor. And he saw and he realized that if he tried to play hardball with Philip the Fair, he might end up in jail. So, Clement V basically does whatever Philip wants. Philip says to jump, and Clement says, how high? Well, Philip, realizing that he has this power over the Pope, told Clement to do something extraordinary. Something extraordinary for a Pope. He said, Clement, move the papacy from Rome to Avignon, France. That's that's a, a big move. I mean, Rome is the city of Peter and Paul. That's where the papacy had always been and to move the papacy and that, that that was an extraordinary kind of move but it happened in 1309 now of course this meant practically that the pope was completely under the thumb of the french king so here you have a case in which not is it? It's very much different from Innocent III, where the pope sort of had power over the various kings. Now it's a case in which the king has the pope under his thumb. Except for a very brief period, papal residency was maintained at Avignon until 1377. We're talking at almost 70 years, and during this time, by and large. The papacy was dominated again by French kings. <clears throat> and then in thirteen seventy-seven, new Pope, Pope Gregory the Eleventh, finally returned the papacy to Rome. Whew. People were glad of that. Gregory <clears> the <throat> Eleventh. Yeah, sometimes I skip. No, I don't know. Anyway. He returned the papacy to Rome and to a schism. This is a great story. Gregory XI comes back to Rome, establishes the papacy there in 1377, and then he did the worst possible thing he could do. He died. That meant a new pope needed to be elected, white smoke and all. The College of Cardinals gather around. And they elected a man named Urban VI. Urban the Sixth was elected to be the new Pope in April of thirteen seventy eight is when the new Pope was elected.
0: This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.